Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, oh, good to good to be back. It's uh, you know during an election, it seems to just fly by our our uh, weeks in between uh, talking to each other. We seem to you know there's a lot of news that they cram into those seven days. Well, I can tell you, as somebody as a former political candidate, uh, elections seem a lot longer when you're a candidate than they do when you're just the average John Q. public. Well, you know, as a public, you can kind of drop in and out and watch the news and all that. But as a candidate, you're knocking on doors every day. You're trying to, you know, cajole votes out of people. You're worried about raising money. You're, uh, you know, worried about volunteers and all that good stuff. It's a, it is a full-time job. So my hat's off to anyone who throw their hat in the ring. Oh, I agree. Uh, regardless of party, it uh, democracy wouldn't exist if it weren't for people willing to stand for election. And I, I don't give in to the cynicism that they're all crooks and they're just trying to line their pocket. A lot of the people who stand for election could and are making more money in the private sector and Ooh, are taking- I think, I think a lot more money in a lot of cases. Yeah, and they take a, a pay cut in order to uh, serve, serve their country. And- the idea that they're doing it just for the money, uh, if, it, it, it isn't borne out by facts. And no, they're not all liars. Uh, politicians, often politicians will campaign on things uh, with an understanding of how the situation has shaped up. Usually when you know it's opposition parties who are campaigning based on how they believe the, fin- what shape they believe the finances are in, and things of that nature. And once they get elected, if they defeat a sitting government, they come in and discover, oh, so no, it's not like we were led to believe. And they have to rearrange, they have to rearrange their priorities, they have to rearrange their, uh, their spending plans, they have to you know, deal, realize that uh, the opposition is gonna be really as obstructionist as possible rather than taking their job, which is to try to make sure that policies are as uh, you know watertight as possible. That they're as thought out as possible. They just want to get in the way of any policies being passed. And then, so then you have to change your agenda again. And once you start varying from what you had promised, people don't tend to look at it and say, "Okay, well, here's the reason why." And there's almost always a reason why promises can't be enacted. The only one I can think of that there's no good reason was when Jean Chrétien campaigned on getting rid of the GST and got elected and made zero attempts to get rid of the GST. Um, That was a time when I didn't see any extenuating circumstances being floated as to why they violated a central campaign promise and possibly one of the ones that got them elected. But other than that, you know, I know that uh, when Trudeau promised when he first got elected that it would be the first, the last, first past the post uh, election election happening, and then he tried to reform the election system and change it, and there was nothing but obstruction from the opposition parties, and there was just they made it so that there was no way to effectively change the voting system. So he had to abandon that promise, and people are still angry at him uh, because of that. Uh, and, and, you know, things of that nature perpetuate this idea that politicians can't be trusted, but I don't believe they can't be trusted. No, and and I have a lot of sympathy. Uh, you know, we, we all demand promises. I mean, election time is is like uh, the the weeks leading up to Christmas, when in the old days you'd sit down with a catalog and you'd, oh, you'd circle stuff and, uh, and, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this, and and the voters demand all kinds of things. I mean, it's, it is an opportunity for, for broad and special interests to uh, be heard and put their agenda forward and, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, dangle a couple of votes in front of a politician in exchange for a, a promise. So everyone comes out asking for their little boutique thing. Some of them, again, some of them are big policies. Some are, are tiny little policies. And, you know, politicians are really, really hard pressed to say no to anybody during an election period, uh, because it's one way to make sure that, uh, that you're not going to get their vote. And there's always going to be another party that, uh, you know, is not going to necessarily have a shot at power, but will promise you the earth. Um, and, uh, you know, and they know full well that they don't have to ever 
make good on any of those promises. Um, you know, the NDP's found itself in that situation a couple of times. Even when Bob Ray was was uh, first uh, elected uh, uh, as uh, as Premier of Ontario for the NDP, all of a sudden he was faced with the idea that everyone he'd ever marched with, everyone he'd ever promised anything to, you know, whether it was practical or not, a lot of them not practical, they came they came to his door to collect. He said, okay, you're Premier now. Now we need all this stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, like, as you said, the realities of government are there's only so many hours in a day. There's only so much legislation. There's only so many things you can study. Only so many things you can get through committee. There's only so many things that you got money for. So I'm sorry. Yeah, we promised a whole bunch of stuff and things move at a, a glacial pace sometimes in Ottawa. And it isn't necessarily through lack of, uh, of, of, of goodwill, like you say, or honesty or, or even trying hard. I mean, there's some things that just are really, really hard to do. And, you know, a lot of people, I think, I think a lot of voters kind of get fished in by stuff like this. I mean, the NDP, you know, passed that motion um, uh, uh, for universal pharmacare. And the motion was two lines. It was, it was literally two sentences. It was a non-binding declaration. Oh, it was non-binding non declaration. Yeah, they weren't proposing legislation, in fact. No, well, and there was absolutely no substance to it because it wasn't like, okay, well, how are you going to do this? How are you going to fund this? How are you going to work with the provinces because it's a provincial jurisdiction? Um, how, you know, what are you going to schedule? What, uh, you know, what drugs are we talking about? Uh, you know, it, it was completely devoid of, of any practical detail that would actually make it work. And, and and the liberals said, well, we're not voting for this. We're working on a farmer care plan, which I have been working on for since like 2018. And now since have had uh, PEI sign up for it. I mean, it is the smallest of the provinces and the least amount of money. But, uh, you know, again, the idea was, OK, we, we start with somebody and we start rolling out in, in, in conjunction with the cooperation from the provinces. But we're not going to be fished in by a, a, a meaningless, hollow statement that everyone is going to point to later on saying okay well you said you're going to do it where is it it's like well the devil's always in the details for these sorts of things but it it does give you know in this case the ndp and they're campaigning out right now you see it all over in their ads and in their literature saying the liberals voted against pharmacare for you people it's like no they voted against an incredibly stupid motion that at the end of the day was incredibly meaningless and they actually have a pharmacare thing that's underway. So it was just cheap politicking when it comes to stuff like that. But it's the kind of empty promise that people love to hear. And then it doesn't, you know, there's no, you know, it's not like the NDP is going to form the government. Um, they don't have to worry about whether or not their promises are ever, ever kept because they're never in a position to keep them. I mean, the closest they'll come is being balance of power when they'll be pressed to try to uh, cajole some of their promises, turning them into, uh, to, you know, manifesting them into reality. But I, you know, that that whole vote, it was clearly just political theater. And I will say that uh, Singh has shown himself to be somewhat of a master at manipulating public opinion um, and manipulating public ignorance with the system. Uh, I used to think that he didn't have that he was ignorant of the system. Now I realize, no, he knows exactly where provincial and uh, federal jurisdictions lie. Um, but for the purposes of political theater, he doesn't bother to enunciate how difficult it is to enable pharmacare, that in fact, it is not something the government can wave a magic wand and make happen. The federal government can't do that, that it has to be in partnership with the provinces. He doesn't say that. He just says, we're support Pharmacare. And then he, they pass that or they, they raise in the House that completely banal statement about Pharmacare, just so they can say that the Liberals voted against Pharmacare, knowing that the actual construction of that entire initiative was a cynical ploy to be able to get a campaign uh, thrust into their, uh, into their efforts. Um, they know that most people aren't going to know that that thing was, was toothless, but the optics of it are terrible. And I wonder, there's, there was you know, a couple of options the Liberals had. They could have just voted for the thing and denied them that, 
that you know you they they voted against pharmacare but on the other hand then they they voted in support of pharmacare and the ndp can walk around saying that they're the ones who brought are bringing pharmacare to the country yeah it's our motion we forced them to do it yeah and and then going like well and going like well it's been it's been two weeks where's the pharmacare that you you voted in favor of see liberals don't keep their promises yeah that's right i I went to shoppers drug mart and i had to pay for my drugs this week where's where's the pharmacare because you passed you know you passed you know in in the popular view you passed a law saying all drugs would be free and i had to pay for my aspirin so you know you guys are liars well there's another example this week too you know about the complexities of, of of cheap promises uh you know singh came out and said that uh you know, they, they were going to effectively nationalize all long-term care homes. You know, they wanted uh, uh, Rivera, which is one of the larger owners of and operators of um, for-profit uh, long-term care homes in Canada and, and in other places, uh, that they wanted to, um, to, to, to make them basically um, uh, not for profit. But, you know, the problem is, you know, two things. One, Rivera, and they say, well, the government owns Rivera. Well, no, the, the, a, a, um, a crown corporation that handles the pension funds for, for a lot of civil servants actually is one, is the owner of Rivera, but it's an arm's length crown corporation. You try to explain this to someone, which is, well, the government doesn't tell arm's length corporate, uh, crown corporations how to run their business. Eyes glaze over. That's why they're arm's length. I mean, because yeah. it would be really inappropriate for governments to tell crown corporations what to do. I mean, they can put pe- sympathetic people on the board and they can do all, but it's all very soft power kind of stuff. And if you're talking about nationalizing something, well, number one, it's private property. Number two, um, commercial businesses, unless they are, uh, unless, you know, they involve cross-border trade are constitutionally squarely a provincial responsibility. So the federal government doesn't have any jurisdiction over long-term care homes either. And, uh, and we don't nationalize stuff in Canada. I, I had to look it up. The last time Canada nationalized anything was 1943 when we nationalized a radium company that was supplying atomic materials to the Manhattan Project. And it was a tiny little company, but it was a vital wartime material and we nationalized it. And the time before that federally was uh, 1918 when we nationalized the CNR because it had gone bankrupt and it was a fire sale and the government said, well, we've got to run this thing. So we're going to buy it. So it wasn't really nationalizing it. Um, we don't nationalize stuff. It's this this NDP pipe dream of 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 how they're going to do stuff. And when pressed, sing when about the long term care home and how are you going to get everybody out of the for profit long term care home. And by the way, I think I think the for profit long term care home model is terrible and it kills people and it, sh- it shouldn't exist. But Singh isn't the person to do anything about this because people said, well, how are you going to do this? Again, it was like the pharmacare thing. Like, okay, you've said, here's this big policy that no more for-profit long-term care in Canada. How are you going to do it? And he went, um, hum, well, I'd have to look at all the things available to the federal government. And of course, we'd have to talk to the provinces and get buy-in. And it's like, so you can't do it is what you're saying. It's, it, it is one of these grand gestures that you know isn't thought through and really doesn't mean anything because you can't do it at the end of the day. It doesn't matter if the goal is noble and all the rest. It's not, it's not within your ju- jurisdiction or power to do the thing, but everyone goes like, yeah, we shouldn't have for-profit long-term care homes. So he gets in front of an issue that has absolutely nothing to do with the federal government. Well, and th- I mean, the goal of making such a statement is not that uh, he expects to get elected and, and to somehow enact it. The goal is to, as you say, get in front of it and make it seem like they're the people who are pushing for the uh, nationalization of long-term care homes. It, it doesn't matter the fact that he can't do it. The follow-up questions almost never make it into the headlines. And so all you get is a headline, Singh promises to nationalize long-term care homes. That's what, they, that's what they're looking for. That's their goal. Their goal, the, the rest of the stuff that, that comes in the body of the article, they don't care about because most people don't read it. <clears throat> the thing that, uh, that, that is sticky, the thing that uh, permeates and uh, retains is the headline. And then the notion 
that the NDP are really the party on the side of the little guy, when in fact, they're just lying to the little guy. And I use little guy in a, a gender neutral way. Uh, they're just lying to the little guy and manipulating the little guy and patronizing the little guy. And I think that to manipulate those who you consider your voting base is an extremely cynical way of doing politics, which in the past, the NDP was above. I mean, they, sure, they would slip here and there, but I mean, I, I, when I talk past, I'm talking past uh, when Ed Broadbent was leading the NDP. He was honest. And that's why he, I mean, that's why the NDP never had any breakthroughs, because especially back then, people generally were more conservative, uh, socially and uh, politically. And he didn't get anywhere with the NDP, but he at least was honest in the way he brought things forward. He wasn't trying to pull a fast one. And that's what Singh keeps trying to do. He keeps trying to pull a fast one on people. And so far, it seems to be working with his charm offensive. And, you know, if you were to look at if the if the election were to be held tomorrow, um, I think Trudeau would have a hard time uh, keeping the minority that he currently has. Um, I think that uh, he'd lose a few seats and the NDP would gain a few seats and he'd go back to a min you know, another minority situation. I still think that that's, in my mind, the most likely circumstance when this is all said and done. But you might also look at things now and say, look at that. The conservatives are scoring points on social media. They're talking about O'Toole mania and uh, <laughs> Singh is scoring yeah, okay. points. Yes, I laughed too. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, just... Singh is scoring points too. And the liberals are oddly quiet. And yet I, I, I liken it. I saw it on social media the comparison to Rocky and the Rocky movies, where you watch his, his, his uh, tactic was always to let himself have the crap beat out of him early on so that the opponent is tired and has nothing left. And then when the opponent is, has, has you know, shot their strength, he steps in, resurges, punches the crap out of the opponent who, is, who now is flailing. And I think the liberals, certainly it's, it's, it would be a smart tactic to let the NDP and the conservatives have their day now when few people are paying attention, when it doesn't really matter, let their, their big promises come out now, make a splash now, because the public's attention span is so short that this stuff will wind up being yesterday's news when the liberals finally kick it into gear. Yeah, and the only thing you have to worry about is when you know whatever happens now, whether it's important or not, becomes a trend. I mean, you know, when people start to, uh, you know, it starts to build up a little bit, and you know, one side or the other gets gets momentum because, you know, obviously the governing party is the party to beat, um, and you know the Liberals are uniquely positioned between the uh, Conservatives and the and the NDP. You know, they're the ones that everyone is trying to to hive off support from. You know, the NDP is looking for the soft, uh, the soft left liberals, and the uh, the conservatives are looking for kind of the the red Tory liberals, since it's a big tent. So you know everyone's taking shots at them, and the government has a record as well. Uh, and people, you know, there are things. Every time a government does something, it, it makes some people happy. It makes other people unhappy. And when you call an election and make promises, people are saying, well. Well, what about uh, you know what about this promise that you made? You know, you you left these uh, these bills to die on the order paper because you called an election, and if you really were about you know X, Y, or Z, then you know you would have toughed out this election and passed passed this this legislation um, instead of just saying okay, we're going to have an election and and I promise to reintroduce it. So there's always people who are going to be unhappy with you. So you know, I I think the Liberals are running a pretty low key campaign right now. Um, I mean, they're, they're out there uh, and, uh, you know, Trudeau is, you know, going, you know, going door to door. He's going from writing to writing. It's interesting that O'Toole um, is, is running a, a campaign very much like, uh, like Pierre Trudeau did in the 70s uh, when he was not very popular. And it was, it's called a peekaboo campaign where you never saw the leader. Um, you know, he gave uh, televised things and very, very controlled things. Harper was, was a master of doing this as well. You know, very, very controlled thing. O'Toole's taken it kind of to another level because 
uh, he he does all of his announcements uh, from his from um from a, a set that they've built in an Ottawa hotel, which is sort of their their command center. Uh, people keep saying, you know, it looks like the church lady set from Saturday Night Live, and, and it really does. It's um it, it you know once you once you see it, you can't unsee it. Uh, but you know he he lives in his 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 um, a fortress of solitude up there, and he will not go out and mingle among the people. You know, Trudeau's going out there mingling around people, and he's getting he's getting the protesters. Uh, you know, whether they are um, in, you know indigenous or if they are, uh, you know, he seems to be shouted these days by by some right wing group. You know, whether or not they're they're paid operatives of the Conservative Party, because you know that's that's part of their playbook as well but you know people who literally follow the campaign from province to province and it's the same people who are out there yelling insults and uh, and trying to make them the news story rather than the candidate um so trudeau has got that but he's out there you know, a lot like his father um except for that one peekaboo campaign uh where you know he's he's confronting the protesters or he, he you know unless there's actual uh, danger to his personal security but uh you know he he's out there uh singh is out there as well uh he's doing things um you know again when you get out there and during an election you want to surround yourself with supporters and have a, a good uh, a good crowd of people who are enthusiastic about you and and what you stand for but you know but singh singh is out there um, but uh, but O'Toole is the one who is not campaigning. He's campaigning on social media. He's campaigning on commercials. Uh, you know, God, you can't turn on you know, a couple of networks without seeing about five uh, Aaron O'Toole commercials. They're just saturating the airwaves with that. And uh, and they have been the masters of direct mail and targeted Facebook and various other ads. I mean, they were at the forefront of that kind of political machinery from the very beginning. You know, they learned it from the Americans and uh, and Harper was was great at that kind of micro targeting. Uh, and it's, you know, it's so that's their campaign. And they think, you know, maybe they can sway enough votes without ever having to leave the, uh, the comfort of his hotel room. Well interesting that he's spending a lot of money on ads for example on television okay well first of all who still watches television older people who are more likely to vote conservative um you know as people get older they tend to, to vote more and more conservative so but also who's watching television in the summer very few people he's spending an awful lot of money for a small audience. And as far as social media goes, you know, it's like it makes me laugh when uh, articles come out saying that Singh has a real edge on because of, because of TikTok. Yeah, and, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm of a certain age. I don't have I don't I don't have TikTok on my phone. So well, I, I'm, I'm not the target audience. Obviously. No. And, and TikTok, a lot of TikTok's audience isn't old enough to vote. Um, and and those that are belong to that co age cohort that turns up least at election time. So, you know, pinning your hope, and the NDP always do this. They talk about how strong they are with the youth vote, but they don't talk about the fact that the youth vote isn't strong. And this is, it's interesting to see uh, O'Toole, and I've seen quite a few uh, NDP ads as well, um, putting a lot of emphasis on social media because when you're on social media, you think social media is the whole world. Oh, yeah. But when you're off social media, when you live in the other world that exists outside of social media, social media has potency. There's no question. But it doesn't have the potency that people think it does. There's a, there, people are able to separate what's going on online from the real world, especially in Canada. In the U.S., different story. There, but the U, Americans are conditioned to be manipulated by messaging. Uh, we're not in Canada. We're not conditioned to be manipulated by messaging. In fact, we won't be manipulated by messaging. We make up our own minds as individuals. So I'm not sure that this is the, the wisest tack for them to take. Uh, the Conservatives had uh, a, an obstacle in front of them, which was O'Toole, uh, who had very high negatives came in last as far as people's choice who, who would make the best prime minister. People didn't know O'Toole. 
And so he was a blank slate that the opposition could paint any color that suited them. So the conservatives had to get him out there and try to tell his story the way they want it told. So I, I understand why they need to make pro O'Toole ads, you know, starting out, they need to germinate the soil. But the anti-Trudeau ads, kind of, I think, a waste of money right now. And people need to remember that there's, there's still, you know, weeks left in this campaign. Trudeau, when he first became prime minister, in that campaign, he was running third. And nobody thought he was going to score an upset. Uh, last election, people thought he was dead because of the blackface scandal. He won again. Um, he is a hell of a campaigner. And, you know, opposition parties uh, don't take that seriously at their own risk because he knows how to turn up the machine and he knows how to do it in the final weeks when it really, really matters. The problem that Trudeau still has is that in office, he hasn't gained any gravitas. He still looks young and fresh faced and looks vapid. You know, his mannerisms, his eyes, he looks like he's not all that bright. Now, it isn't true about his actual intelligence, but the way he comes across, he still comes across as somebody who is where he is because of who he is, not because of what he's done. And that's a negative. I would have thought that he would have gained a little more gravitas after being a two-term prime minister, but he still doesn't. When I watch him, he, he still looks young, naive, and fresh-faced, which was great when he was uh, an alternative and people were looking for an alternative to the austere, you know, uh, angry dad Harper. Um, but now, office hasn't the office hasn't weighed on him in any way that's visible. And I think that that's something that goes against him. Yeah, and the uh, yeah, it, it, I remember when uh, when he shaved his beard off, his COVID beard. Yeah, uh, that was the first time I thought, oh, there's an election coming. Um, you know, you know, it, it's because you know it's the it's the younger Trudeau. It's like, and you know, oddly enough, you know, Trudeau is is one year and and, and a month older than O'Toole. Uh, which you know nobody believes until you go look up their birthdays on on Wikipedia, um, but uh, you know, but O'Toole you know looks like everyone's you know dad, and uh, and and Justin Trudeau still has this this uh, the, the blush of youth on him, especially now that he's got uh, the beard gone. But it, it it's funny, you know, there's been times when their election strategy, uh, I've scratched my head. And I've been watching I've been watching campaigns and elections for for a lot longer than I care to admit. And, you know, sometimes you get a sense of of where a campaign's going, why they're doing it, who they're positioning, you know, who they're 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 targeting, why they do something that may not seem intuitive. But, it, you know, but there's a bigger game at play. And in the last couple of elections, uh, you know, especially the 2015 election, they were doing stuff. And I kept looking at it going like, what the hell are they doing? I don't get, I don't get the, the, the short game, the medium game or the long game that they're playing here. I can't believe that saying this thing that is gratuitous, you know, no, it's, it is no one's forcing him into a corner to say this. They come out with a policy or a statement or something. And I go, oh my God, that is, that's just death. And it turns out to work. So, you know, clearly I'm really terrible at, at being a political analyst. Um, and he's got some really, really smart people who are able to work their voodoo and pull things out of the hat that aren't immediately, you know, um, recognizable by everybody else as being vote getters. So I'm not sure what the strategy is in this election. I think they are still trying to find their feet a little bit, um, but that seems to be the case in a lot of, of Justin Trudeau's election campaigns, even though you know they're the ones who called this election, I mean, I still think they should have they should have run out the clock uh, on it. Um, I agree with you. And 
Uh, but, you know, I, you know I, I remain to be convinced otherwise, and we'll find out on September 20th whether or not uh, it was a good strategy or a bad strategy. But it just seems to me that they, they weren't as ready as they could have been. If this was some big Machiavellian plot, I would have had like, you know, everyone ready to go and all my candidates nominated and, and a campaign underway and my talking points and all the rest. And it's really hard to kind of figure out what the talking points are. Um, you know, there's individual issues. I mean, obviously the $10 a day daycare, big, big issue, uh, starting to talk a little about pharmacare, but some of the issues that they're dealing with early in the campaign are, are issues that have been, you know, that, that are sort of unforced errors by the conservatives. Um, so, you know, you know, Aaron O'Toole, uh, Christy Friedland did a, you know, we're talking about the, you know, the influence so-called of social media, you know, Christy Friedland, uh, this week, uh, or on the weekend came out, uh, posted a video of O'Toole talking about two-tier healthcare, about privatizing some aspects of our healthcare, giving, giving Canadians more choice is the way the conservatives, you know, the choice, yeah. the choice to have healthcare or, you know, die in a ditch. Uh, it's a great, it's a great choice. Um, but the whole idea of, of, of privatizing certain aspects of our healthcare and the, the media and, and the Twitterverse jumped all over the fact that Twitter for some reason, because I don't know what it takes to stir Twitter to do things like this, marked her um, video as misleading because it had been edited down. Um, but there was, you know, there was a link to the full thing. Um, and the, you know, the conservatives went on at great length saying, Oh, look at this. It's misleading. You know, say calling, uh, telling, uh, the world that Aaron O'Toole favors two tier, uh, healthcare. And then when probed on it, Aaron O'Toole did video interviews where he said, well, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I believe in two tier healthcare because I believe in, he didn't use two tier because that, that, that would be death. He said, I know I believe in choice. I believe there should be more choices. I think there should, there's a room for private healthcare in the Canadian system, which is basically, which is, you know, that the head of the Canadian medical association said, well, that's, that's two tier healthcare. Um, so this misleading video that Friedland had edited a clip down and put out on a tweet and everyone, you know, was like, Oh my God, look how dishonest these liberals are smoked out O'Toole on the issue and now he's been wearing it for days that he is you know two-tier O'Toole that he really is uh, not in favor of the the universality that we have in our healthcare right now and he would further erode it and so you know real unforced error and Canadians love their healthcare with all of its flaws and all of its problems and and you know the wait lists and what's not listed and all the rest we still don't think that pay, uh, pay for healthcare is a good idea, even though Quebec and Saskatchewan uh, do it. And, and the federal government says, well, if you keep doing that, we're going to withhold money. But uh, Canadians, that's the third rail. And O'Toole was really smoked out into saying, yeah, no, I, I believe in, in, in healthcare for the rich. Yeah. It, and I think right there, that's the game. I think that, uh, you lay in start, the bushes and make them make unforced errors and then pick away at it. I think actually the, the two-tier healthcare thing is the game. And if they can make that stick, if they can stick, make it stick that he's two-tier O'Toole um, and beat the, beat the message home that he will support the dismantling of our universal healthcare system, that's the game. The conservatives are done because... Yeah. Canadians don't want anyone monkeying with our health care. Hell, even in the U.S., you'll see waving signs, keep the government out of my Medicare. Um, people, once they get a, uh, a social benefit, they don't want to lose it. And especially something as important as health care, especially when we're next door to the United States, where you hear the horror stories about people going bankrupt because they uh, had a difficult birth. Uh, of a child or, ta or uh, taking dog insulin because they can't afford human insulin. Yeah. yeah lot, lots of lovely stories like that. And, and we're very aware of them. If the conservatives don't completely walk back the notion of two tier healthcare, um, I think they're done as long as the liberals pound that home that because they're, they're used to, usually there's one message that rises to the fore that can be used as the wedge. And I think that, uh, and, and O'Toole can't completely walk back the two-tier thing. One, because there's too many statements of, that he's made in the, in the past about supporting two-tier. Um, and when he, and his, he continues to make them, like right now, on the campaign trail. Yeah, and that's because he's got supporters who, and, and donors 
who want to see two-tier health care. There's billions and billions of dollars in it. Canada's a virgin market for all of those uh, American healthcare companies that want to come up here and provide us uh, for-profit healthcare. Yeah, it's that is that is death. It, it reinforces the negative uh, images of conservatives in general that they uh, want to dismantle things that help the the needy in order to help the rich. It uh, attacks a motherhood plank of Canadian life, which is our healthcare system. If the Liberals keep beating on that, then they, that's the game, I believe. And as much as O'Toole will want to talk about, I believe in choice, I believe in choice, all you're going to hear about is it being called two-tier healthcare. And two-tier healthcare is not a winner in this country. No, and the other issue, you know, the other, you know, third rail that uh, that they seem to want to grab with both hands and put their tongue on is the abortion issue. And that's come up again during the election because O'Toole came out and, and said as a campaign platform plank is that, you know, they support the uh, freedom of conscience of uh, of healthcare professionals to to not refer, you know, you know, they already have the right not to perform abortions. I mean, no, no one forces doctors at gunpoint to perform abortions or, you know, sex reassignment surgery or, or any of the, the things that conservatives consider icky. Um, you know, you can still, you know, do that kind of stuff. We have Catholic hospitals that, that don't provide those services. But uh, he was he went further and said, well, freedom of conscience means they don't even have to refer on people you know they don't have to say well you know i don't i don't believe in abortion and i won't perform one we don't do them here but you know i you know here's a number of a clinic down the road that does that and he said no no that that uh, that offends the rights of, of doctors and it's like no no it doesn't does it you know as a doctor you're there to care for people and your personal feelings takes you know second or third seat to your obligation to look after people whatever they come in with otherwise you know your freedom of conscience well how you I don't believe in blood transfusion so I'm not going to tell you anyone who uh, will do a, blood, a life-saving blood transfusion as you bleed out on the floor of my hospital or <clears throat> you know you know any of the other sorts of, of strange issues that uh, you know go wild in the states I mean you know, uh, right down to you know the gay uh, the gay wedding cake uh, kind of stuff and you that freedom of conscience has never been um, uh, 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 something that's been protected in Canada, even though it's in the Charter of Rights, it's been so loosely interpreted that that you know it stops people from doing this. But you know, um, O'Toole grabbed that with both hands because he's appealing to a social conservative base and said, you know, this is going to be the thing. And it's it's code words, obviously, for for his base. And at the same time, again, with healthcare, he was, you know, there's a there's a fight going on with a couple of the provinces that are not are providing inadequate access to abortion services. And, uh, you know, the federal government says, well, we're going to withhold money uh, from you until you, you know, you, you smarten up a little bit under uh, the, the health transfer payments, uh, because, you know, we're committed to people having access to reproductive services um, and we're not to let you starve those people. And O'Toole's answer to that was, I'm going to let the provinces do what they want, which is basically saying they can deny services to people. Uh, that's none of my business. We just fork over the money. And if they want to do, deny uh, access to abortion or reproduct other reproductive um, uh, services, then, you know, that's entirely their business. We got no business in it at all, which is, which has been a consistent conservative platform since, uh, you know, the beginning of the Harper years. Well, that's another, as you, as you call it, third rail in Canadian politics. We haven't had abortion legislation in decades at this point. 1988. And so far, nobody seems, no great hue and cry is heard across the land demanding it. It's been turned into what it should be, which is a matter between a woman and her doctor. Um, not something that the rest of us have any say in. And it's, it's working. Now, if you're anti-abortion, you don't have one. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, that's basically it. But if you're anti-abortion, you feel that this is a problem and we have freedom of conscience. You can believe that all that you want. And again, so don't have an abortion. But Canadians don't want that dealt, uh, raised again either. Canadian, that's you, you've got the, the, the double there, the daily double. You got 
him uh, talking about two-tier healthcare and him seeming to be complicit in allowing uh, abortion services to be limited and allowing his uh, MPs to, to stand up and, and be anti-abortion, uh, anti thinking that him saying that he's pro-choice will be enough. It won't be. Um, they're playing into the classic mold of what people think of uh, conservatives when they think negatively about conservatives. And that, that, they're, that they're religious fundamentalists, that they try to impose their views on the rest of the country, that they care only about their rich friends. All of these things are going to, I, believe, I mean, if, if the liberal campaign handles it properly, they're going to be able to turn this around and knock down O'Toole. The concern I have, and I don't know if it really I should call it a concern, but I mean, Singh is the most popular politician in the country, and he seems to be inhabiting the place that Justin Trudeau had two elections ago. But, uh, and if you notice his, the change of his wardrobe while he's on the campaign trail, he's not regularly wearing those very expensive suits. His, his bespoke suits, yeah. Yes, he's, we he's wearing more down-to-earth uh, dad outfits more often than he was before. Yeah, not seeing the Rolex very often anymore. No, you were, they're obviously modeling him and styling him to appeal more to the, you know, the blue collar that uh, the NDP tends to appeal to. So I, while he's popular now, um, I wonder if that's a bubble that will burst. Um, I wonder if his popularity is a mile wide and an inch deep. And I wonder if his popularity isn't with uh, certain voting cohorts that just really don't show up at the uh, at the uh, election booths. Yeah, and, and I I think they're they certainly have that that potential problem that uh, you know po you know it's great to be popular it's great to you know like a tweet and all that kind of stuff but that's very different than getting out your your vote especially especially first time voters especially uh, you know non traditional NDP voters. And you know the uh, the NDP really did, I think, on uh, certainly on social media, uh, a real disservice to itself. I mean, you talked about the gravitas, and uh, and and the uh, uh, you know the, the, the dignity and and the the honor that uh, you know, people like uh, like Broadbent brought to uh, to the NDP, and you know the NDP decided in the last couple of years to jump on the same bandwagon that that seemed to be working for the conservatives, uh, which, you know, grandstanding and half truths and outrageous tweets uh, about, uh, about hot and button issues. I mean, they're, you know, they're, you know, going off and doing, you know, big, uh, big pronouncements at, uh, at, at uh, you know, they've done a, a number of Aboriginal things that have been, been sort of full of half truths. You know, they go to, uh, uh, you know, particular, uh, Aboriginal settlement that has, uh, you know, it's like, you know, they've been without clean water for, for you know, 900 days, uh, you know, which is a tragedy, but, you know, they don't say in the same breath that, well, the water treatment plant is almost finished in the place where you are right now. And, you know, and it's, it's going in and, you know, two thirds of the population already have clean water where they are. Uh, and you know the rest of them are coming online, and you know they're, they're, they sort of jump on the the cheap um, you know the cheap showboating and half truths that the conservatives have just excelled at in, in the last ten years um, because they think I guess it works, but I think it really has turned off a lot of people because a lot of people go like you know come on NDP you're supposed to be better than that. Um, you know, we expect that from the conservatives, but, uh, you know, we don't expect that from you. I mean, partisanship is one thing, but just outright uh, mis misinformation and lying, that, that, that's really not your thing, or at least it shouldn't be your thing, especially for a, a party that prides itself on being holier than thou and, and, and Simon Pure. Um, it, it's, I think that is, has really tarnished some of their, their image among the uh, you know among the you know the, the the saintly types and even you know speaking of saintly types you know um, you know Jack Layton's uh, the 10th anniversary of his his death was just this past week and Singh you know again grandstanding said that you know we should you know he would like to introduce legislation to rename the writing that I'm in actually um, uh, Layton Danforth because Jack Layton represented it um, 
such a bad idea for all kinds of reasons. Like you don't, you don't name nonpartisan elections Canada writings after politicians who are, you know, obviously very, very partisan. Um, you know, you know, I, I said on Twitter, well, we're going to name it a Harper Lee side next, or, uh, you know, her, her, you know, Pierre Trudeau Mount Royal. I mean, you don't put partisan living memory politicians names in the electoral process, uh, you know, name airports after them or whatever, hockey fields, whatever you like, but, you know, you don't take the electoral process with partisanship. And, you know, and, and the other fact is, you know, Jack Layton did represent the riding that I live in. He never lived here. Um, he, he always lived over in Trinity Spadina uh, with, with Olivia Chow. Um, you know, he never had a house in this riding, um, but, you know, he, he represented it. I mean, you know, but Dennis Mills represented this riding a lot longer than Jack Layton did. And I don't see anyone saying, you know, it should be, you know, it should be called, uh, you know, Toronto uh, Dennis Mills Danforth. But, uh, you know, it's that kind of, that kind of stupid showboating that is really inappropriate, I think has turned off a lot of people who normally would have given the NDP a second look. Well, I hope it's turned, turned them off. I hope it's not working because it shouldn't work. And, and this is not just something because I don't support the NDP politically. This is something that I'm concerned about the political system in Canada, not turning into the shit show that it is in the United States. And I'd rather Canadians aren't easily manipulated by cynical political moves and cynical political showboating. So I hope it doesn't work. I, I, I know that a lot of people were very disappointed with Singh because he was backing up the conservatives so often. It, 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 it sounded like uh, they were reading from the same songbook. It, it, like they were saying literally the same thing on a number of issues. And there, are, there had to be a unique NDP perspective manner of coming at the same criticism, but they didn't take it. So it, that'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see if his personal popularity translates, because while the support for the liberals still is in the lead, what people aren't is enthusiastic about the liberals. And I think that's something that maybe Justin Trudeau misjudged. I don't know what data they had when they decided to go forward, but being having a, uh, a populace that is supportive of the government and supportive of how the government handled the pandemic doesn't mean you've got a population that is motivated to support that that uh, party when an election time comes. I just don't see people, liberals, particularly enthusiastic about uh, the government. And I don't see independent voters enthusiastic about Trudeau. I. I think people are like, well, he did a good job during the pandemic, but there's, there doesn't seem to be that energy that was there uh, the last two elections. It's almost like we're a little exhausted of it. Yeah, and I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, it, I, I think a lot of people, you know, the first majority government that, that Justin Trudeau had, uh, yeah, I look back at it and yeah, there's a lot of good, you know, care caretaker kind of legislation that was passed. I mean, a lot of it was sort of fixing, you know, the legacy of, of Harper and, uh, you know, you know, it's not very sexy uh, putting things back together that someone else has dismantled because that's just maintenance work. It's like taking your car in for an oil change. Just it's one of those things you do. It's not, uh, it, it's not sexy. It's just, you know, you got to do it. And so a lot of people thought that uh, his first uh, majority government was a little bit wasted because there wasn't any big idea. There wasn't any big programs or anything. And it was really only under the minority. And, you know, the NDP will take credit for this, but yeah, they take credit for, for everything. Um, that, uh, you know, in, in the pandemic, I think more so than the NDP or a minority situation, really got the liberals thinking about some big plans again. I mean, you know, the conspiracy theorists, you know, talk about it, you know, whether it's the, the Great Reset or the New World Order or the, what, you know, the Building Back Better, which is, you know, terrible, terrible slogan, which I'm, I'm glad everyone has dropped. But, uh, you know, the pandemic really made them rethink the role of government. And I think also when, when budgetary restraints were thrown out the window because no one, you know, no one except for the, you know, the conservatives are saying, well, we'll balance the budget in 10 years you know, maybe. Um, no one's really talking about deficits uh, being that bad anymore. So when you've got money to spend, you're able to dream big. And I think we're seeing that with the $10 day daycare and, you know, the, the, the first glimmers of a national pharmacare policy and a few other things that, uh, you know, the, the liberals 
are doing in their minority situation. Um, and I think they're, they're starting to dream big. They didn't do that in the first, uh, in their first majority situation. Um, you know, I, I would hope that if they continue to form a government after September 20th, they continue to push for these dreaming big things. Cause I think they're, they're hitting a stride. Um, but, uh, I think a lot of people are tired because they say, well, you know, that first four years can't really point to much of anything that was really a, you know, a keystone kind of bit of, of legislation, but, you know, pandemic wise, there has been a lot of that kind of stuff. And I think a lot of people are saying, well, this election seems to be a bit of a hiccup. Why didn't you continue on with the program that seemed to be working both in terms of pandemic and social supports and various other sorts of, you know, big picture um, social engineering things, as the conspiracy people would say, that could really make Canada a better and different place. Um, and, you know, we've sort of had to hit the pause button for this election. So I think a lot of people are going, well, yeah, we're going the right direction, but, you know, there's still Why more the pit than... stop? Yeah, why the pit stop? And I really think that uh, I don't care what kind of data they had. You know that once you uh, drop the writ, anything can happen and support that seems solid can disappear. Um, they had the ability with two opposition parties saying, don't call an election. They had the opportunity to govern as if they had a majority yep. and they could have pushed through a lot of transformative policies. They could have very publicly started talking about pharmacare and that they're negotiating with the provinces. They could have uh, very publicly started the uh, the daycare program. They could have had it in. If they had the daycare program enacted, they would have been elected and reelected in a heartbeat. Yeah. Uh, they had the opportunity to really make transformative policies, and they didn't. They chose an election instead, and I think that was a stupid move. Um, they didn't need to get a majority a government in order to govern like they had a majority because neither other neither party wanted uh, neither opposition party wanted an election. They were willing to deal with the government, negotiate with the government to let the government get its policies through. So he missed a great opportunity. He really gambled that his popularity through the pandemic was going to carry him through to a majority government. And again, what's the need of getting a majority government if the government you currently have can govern as if it has one? It, this just strikes me as uh, political foolishness. Really, and I, I understood. You know, when when asked about why he he called a government uh, uh, an election, uh, you know, Trudeau said, and you know, the political scientist in me says, you know, this is absolutely right. He said, "Look, we're doing a lot of big things here, and I think it's fair to ask Canadians if this is the direction that they approve of, because no one asked them, you know, about our handling of the pandemic or anything else. This has all happened, and you know, our mandate. You know, I." I want a mandate to continue to do this kind of stuff. And I understand that from on a, on a very, you know, intellectual level, but I don't think many people understand it, you know, on a, on a visceral level, because like you said, and we've said before on the podcast that, you know, continue to rule as a, as if you've got a majority and, you know, dare the opposition, you know, dream big and dare the opposition to, to call you on it and say, okay, if you don't like it, have an election. Um, and, you know, and, instead they said, no, no, we're going to go back to the people and get a mandate. And, and the, you know, any of the polder, poll, pollsters will tell you that, you know, the polls themselves about how popular you are really is only part of the story. You know, the real thing you have to watch in an election, especially if you are the incumbent governing party, is the question, are people wanting a change? Um, you know, are, are, do people say, yeah, I, I'm ready for a change, no matter how good you have it, no matter, you know, what, you know, how well the government has done or, or whatever else, are you just tired of them? Are you ready for something different? And, you know, we saw that in Ontario and we got Doug Ford. I mean, he's like, yeah, I'm ready for a change. I'm tired of these, you know, liberals have been in too long and yeah, they're doing okay. But, you know, there's, there's this grocery list that we've assembled over the last 16 years of things we're upset about. So yeah, it's time, it's time for a change. And as soon as the numbers get big enough where people say, yes, it's time for a change for whatever reason, then as an incumbent government, you're in trouble because it's not whether you've done a good job. It's not whether or not you like the leader. It is about, 
is it time for a change? And I haven't seen any polling about that. Um, you know, I, I would think there's a good number of Canadians who say, well, it's kind of a, a risky time for a change because we could undo an awful lot of the stuff that's just started, you know, that's popular and just getting going. But if those numbers get big enough, then you're in trouble. I always say that there are two times when the public leans towards wanting a change. One is when they're exceptionally unsatisfied by the government. The other is when they're very satisfied with the government. Because once they're comfortable and they feel the situation is stable, that's when they start to feel like it's okay to shop around. Yeah. And, I th and when the party in power doesn't have enthusiasm behind it, that's when people say, yeah, things have generally been good. I, you know what, maybe it's okay. Maybe it's a good time for a change. And if Trudeau hammers home that uh, there's still more pandemic to deal with and who do, you, who do you trust to run the government during the pandemic, we who did it. And that there's we, a lot of risk in change. Yeah, they, they have to hammer that, that message home. And I hope they do. I mean, I think their last election, I think they were lucky to get reelected because it was a referendum on Andrew Scheer more than yep. it was a referendum on, on Justin Trudeau. And I think they were lucky last time to get reelected based on the fact that I think they ran a very poor campaign. Um, I hope that they're smart enough. I mean, if, if two dolts like you and I can sit here and figure this out, certainly the geniuses <laughs> that, that uh, comprise the, the brain trust of the liberal campaign machine must be able to figure out the things that we're saying. Um, but sometimes... Uh, sometimes I you're wonder. too close to it. Yeah, and sometimes or too you, you're... or too invested in something that you know you think should work, but but you know once you release it in the wild, it doesn't. Yeah, they 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 breathe rarefied air, and you know they need to get out and ride the subways more often. I my my friend uh, and mentor, the late Jay Switzer, uh, used to ride the subway uh, at least once a week. So he could hear what people were talking about, get a sense of where the public was, you know, what the zeitgeist was. Oh, and, you'll get that on the subway. That's for sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. You'll, you'll get it on the And they need to be out riding the subways more than they need to be meeting in, in uh, conference rooms with fluorescent lights with pollsters. Because that's where you're going to get the real sense of what is visceral out there. And it'll be interesting to watch this election unfold because... As we talked about, there have been cases where there were uh, either, there was either a majority government and the government thought for sure they're going to get reelected, so they went to the public and lost. And there have been times during coalition governments or minority governments where the uh, senior partner decides they want to govern alone and goes they go to the uh, the public and the public turfs them. It has happened, and it I mean. The, the memory, I mean, Frank Miller in Ontario wasn't a popular political figure. So you could see the seeds of the uh, big blue machine's destruction in his lack of popularity and lack of political acumen. Uh, but certainly David Peterson was, as Premier of Ontario, a smart man. Um, yeah. And, yeah, and personable and well-spoken and, and all, all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And popular, yet he went to the polls and people chose the NDP. So there is precedent. And uh, well, I don't, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I don't believe that uh, not only is, is uh, Jagmeet Singh, I think not fit to be prime minister in that I think, first of all, he's uh, uh, a crass manipulator of public opinion and uh, uses the public's own ignorance against them. But also, this is the second time he was leader of the party going into an election, and they had so many un, uh, unfilled ridings. They had no candidates in so many ridings. Um, and his bench is not deep. There was a time when there were some, some pretty bold thinkers with lots of experience as NDP MPs in, in the shadow cabinet. Uh, that bench is not there anymore. So it reminds me of when Bob Ray got elected and Bob Ray's bench was Bob Ray. 
Um, and he had to pull people in. He was lucky he had Floyd Logren who had experience. But other than those two, it was a clown car. And you, when you're electing a, a government, you're electing not just who's going to be prime minister, but you're electing other MPs who are going to be in key positions. And if you can't point to people and say, this person would be a good minister of so-and-so, and that person, if you can't do that, if there aren't really bright rising stars or bright experienced politicos in your caucus, then the public has to look at that and say, they don't have the breadth of talent. And I think with, uh, with O'Toole, I don't, I don't support his policies. I don't like the, these, the fact that he's beholden to social conservatives for getting elected as leader. Um, I think he talks out both sides of his mouth. I think he himself is probably an amiable individual, but I think that uh, politically he is out of step with the values of the majority of Canada. And also the bench that they have is frightening. Michelle Rempel Garner, Pierre Palievre, I mean, his bench is, is frightening and Andrew Scheer is still on his bench. So I, this is why, and I support, I believe the Liberals did a very good job during the pandemic. I believe that there was a bit of a straitjacket and that anybody who was in government would have had to enact very similar policies. Um, that being said, I think the Liberals uh, enacted the best policies that out of the, the, what the other two parties would have created and did a fine job taking us through this pandemic when things could have cratered, uh, you know, certainly things could have been much worse than they turned out to be. The economy is in a place where it can come back now because of the supports offered to individuals and businesses. And that showed a sober uh, prosecution of government policy throughout the pandemic. And make no mistake, it was pretty measured and when, Everyone was, you know, losing their head and blaming it on the, uh, the liberals about vaccines and vaccine shortages and so on. They just were steady as she goes. They didn't panic. They didn't overreact. It was, they had a plan. They knew when the, the vaccines were coming in and it, it was steady as she goes. And that kind of steadiness I like in a government when faced with a crisis, because I'm not convinced we're out of this yet. Oh, no, no, no. There, there, there's, there's definitely more to come. And then the question is, you know, who do you trust to manage it? Uh, going forward, uh, you know, and we've seen sort of the disasters that you know, most of the conservative-led uh, provinces have had in their pandemic response. I mean, just uh, you know, Alberta being one of the one of the the most terrible examples of it, but uh, you know, Ontario uh, as well has has had uh, a a a terrible. Um, non-scientific response to uh, to the pandemic that is has sacrificed lives in favor of uh, of of of, a, of an economy that uh, you know isn't benefiting anybody. Um, it's uh, you know it's it's really a question of the priorities. And at the end of the day, the you know the, the Conservative Party always favors business, um, whether it's in terms of you know if we're going to give money to anyone, we're going to give it to businesses so they can keep running. Forget about the employees. Whereas you know the Liberals have said no, you give it to the people. And um, I mean there are supports for for businesses as well, but but uh, the, the whole idea of the, of the trickle down that uh, the Conservatives still cling to, which is you know how uh, how they think uh, that the, the federal government should be handing out its money, um, you know, isn't to the poor, it isn't to the disadvantaged, it isn't to the people who are, uh, you know, short on money for rent or groceries or, uh, or anything else or daycare. It's, uh, you know, the, the conservatives, uh, you know, want to give it to, um, you know, give it to you as, as, as a tax, uh, a tax refund or a, uh, you know, a tax credit or some, some other, uh, you know, corporate uh, welfare thing. And, you know, if that was the way that we'd handled this pandemic, you would have seen an awful lot more suffering among ordinary Canadians. And, you know, I, I, I would hope that, that Canadians are smart enough to see that, that uh, you know, that would be what's in store for, for uh, you know, the fourth wave, the fifth wave, whatever comes after that, if, uh, if this carries on. Well, as I always say, we will continue to watch and monitor and bring people our opinions uh, viewed through our own uh, personal lenses. We're not claiming to have all the answers. We're not claiming to be completely objective. Um, we are just a, a couple of guys with opinions. And uh, hopefully you uh, enjoy listening to these opinions. Hopefully it stirs some thoughts 
and discussions amongst you and, and those around you, because that's the whole point of it. Um, Stephen, thank you again. Hey, my pleasure. And happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You know, you're doing this on your birthday now. That's dedication. I'm not one who makes a large deal about his birthday. Oh, I make a, a big deal about my birthday. It's like, I, it's, it's, there, there, there better, there better be a parade. <laughs> After uh, my bar mitzvah, it was pretty much all downhill. Oh, okay. uh, well, see, I never got one of those. Maybe that's, yeah, the, maybe the, I'm compensating. Nothing, nothing tops that. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing to, you know, you peak, your birthday's peak when you're 13, when you're Jewish. And after that, it's, uh, it's just another year. Now I've been um, to a lot of bar mitzvahs and they're a lot of fun, but you know, only as a, only as a guest. Yeah. They're, they're a lot less fun when it's on your shoulders. Um, but thank you for the birthday wishes and thank you to all the people on Facebook and to the people who um, contributed to uh, the charity that I had chosen. And uh, it was an animal uh, rescue charity in Beausajour, uh, but it's a Canada-wide uh, charity. I'm a big sucker for animals. And uh, so it was sort of a natural. Uh, Stephen Lawton's can be found on Twitter, uh, at Stephen Lawton's, which is S-T-E-P-H-E-N-L-A-U-T-E-N-S. Um, I can't be found on Twitter, <laughs> um, but we do have a Facebook page. Feel free to contribute. and. Uh, that's it for us this week, Stephen. So we'll talk again next week. I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Yes, there will be. Um, I'm Stephen Kersner. He's Stephen Lawton's. And this has been Stephen and Stephen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>